You may wish to adjust the dial you're currently tuned into. The wrong station. It's your first time through? I'll show you around in Calgary when we come on it. Got a good look a few years back. You got one of those uh, new observatories at the university there. Saw a big announcement in the newspaper while bringing some cattle through to sell in Red Deer. On the way back, unburdened of my livestock, stopped by the building. A dusty, weather-beaten ranch hand sticks out like a sore thumb around academics, which worked out to my advantage that day. Lead astronomer came from cattle ranchers. Said I reminded him of his father. <laughs> oh, shoot. Guess I am getting up in years. Gave me some time with the telescope that night. Showed me the planets and stars. Told me with excitement about how soon they'll have an even bigger lens to see even further. But all I could see with my eye to the glass was that black darkness between the points of light. I left him to his devices and continued the long ride home. While I was in the saddle, couldn't stop thinking. Sure, maybe one day they'll make a telescope that can see further. One that could see all the way to wherever those damn things came from. But if they do, I ain't gonna be the one to look through it. I've seen enough. <laughs> well, no doubt you heard my story. But you probably never heard it from me, so, uh, all right. Come on, boys, bring some more wood for that fire and pour me some more coffee. Settle in, settle in. Suppose it wouldn't be a cattle drive without Cassidy telling that story. Now then, me and my brothers had been ranching since we could throw a lasso. August and I learned to shoot before we were six. Ma wanted us to hold off on teaching Wyatt till he was older. But the boy was a damn magician with a Winchester repeater. You wouldn't know to look at him, since he was so pale and sickly all the time. Kind of hunched, too, which made you miss how tall he was. But that was Wyatt. Other kids called him the boy preacher on account of his Bible reading. Anyway, me, August, and Wyatt were on the range with the cattle when the shower came. Wyatt and I were on night patrol. All day we watched the cattle chew their way through the overgrown fields keeping a special eye on Jessie so she wouldn't wander off. Ma and Pa told us not to name him because it would make the slaughter that much more difficult. But some beasts just cry out for a moniker, whether in temperament or behavior. Jessie loved to give us the slip, an outlaw well-deserving of an outlaw's name. That evening had already been an eventful one. Around sunset, Wyatt had plugged a coyote that was bothering the cattle. He did it from nearly a hundred yards away. 
When we got up close, we saw two things. The white's bullet had pierced its eye, perfect-like, and that the poor beast had been rabid, foaming saliva speckled its jowls and stained the dust where it lay. A lot of rabid coyotes this year, I said. Something in the air. All of a sudden, Wyatt shouted, Look it! And I turned away from the dead coyote and followed his finger up. Boys, it was like the galaxy itself were falling. Ten thousand streaks of light if it was a dozen. Each of them a bright, loud color. Not pale white like the shooting stars I was used to. Try as I might, I can't describe that color... Except to say that it was some kind of green. But not truly green. No, not at all. No green like that on Earth. Wyatt's mouth uh, hung open like a bucket. So wide it was like he wanted to catch a meteor in his throat. He was only eleven back then, but Rancher's eleven. Sands knew the bite of rope burn and the hilt of a bowie knife. Still, though, his heart was soft. He was the one who'd named Jesse. Behind him, I saw August's eyes shining from his bedroll. He'd awoken at the sound of Wyatt's cry. A good older brother. Seventeen years to my fourteen and Wyatt's eleven. We tried to hide it, but he was just as amazed by the sight as we were. I always suspected that uh, August came off harder than he was on account of those dime novels he was always reading. Stories, uh, mountain men and outlaws and sheriffs... Gunfight around every corner. They always end the same way, with the bad guy getting blown away. Even after he plugs the good guy using a dirty trick. Good guy rolls behind a barrel, loads his last cartridge, breathes deep, then blam! Right between the eyes. Mmm. A sweet taste of revenge. And sometimes it's even spiced with justice, too. He got the sense that August wanted to disappear into one of those stories. Life was simpler there. Just ride off into a world where things made sense. No, our life wasn't like that. Never would be. Together, we watched the stars fall in silence. It was the last beautiful thing any of us were to see for a long while. When we rode back to town, it was to commotion. Our friends, family, even the saloon-keeper gathered round our homestead. From a distance, we saw them swarming the place like ants, and I had a powerful bad feeling in my gut for the last stretch of ride. Sheriff Hepford met us before the door, hand already over his heart. I'm sorry, boys, he said, his red nose getting redder and redder with each word. It's your folks. Last night something happened. We aren't Rightly sure. It trailed off. Inside, there weren't anything left but uh, red, pink, and purple scraps, like the confetti down in Cowtown on the first day of the Dominion Exhibition. August walked out pale as anything and told me not to look, but I did just the same. Where are their heads? I'm told I asked that question over and over again, but Nobody had an answer. Wyatt stayed back, and I'm grateful he never saw what was inside that house. August started yelling at the crowd, asking them what had happened while we were away. Didn't take long to get the tale. 
It had happened last night. One of those meteors had landed just outside town and jolted everyone clean out of their beds. When they stepped outside, they saw a shadowed figure making his way to our homestead, seemingly not caring about being noticed in the bright starlight. Those that saw him swore up and down that it was old Bates Sheffield, and that after he'd done it, he'd run off into the wilds, on foot no less. It was then that a pale, shaken Mrs. Sheffield stepped forward out of the crowd. The mob quieted down right quick when they saw her, waiting with hungry eyes and saliva in their mouths. She didn't deny the allegations against her lawfully wedded husband. Point of fact, she corroborated them. Meteor hit right close to their property, and Old Bait had gone out back to check the damage. When he came back inside, he was a different man. Mrs. Sheffield, with a quaver in her voice, had asked him what all the hubbub was about, only for him to lash out with his hands. This was a surprise. Old Bait was a quiet, kindly sort, despite having served in the army as a young man. Whatever he'd done or seen done, well, it I now understand it must have impacted his mind. Since he'd arrived in town, he'd made it his business to not talk about the past, and we'd obliged him his privacy. She'd dodged him, she said, but only just barely, and lost a clump of her hair in the process. She ran out of the house and hid herself in the groups of people who'd come out onto Main Street. From there, she watched as old Bate walked out of their matrimonial home and toward ours. Now, this assault on his wife was the first time he'd done more than speak a harsh word. To follow that up with the wanton murder of our parents. Wyatt put it best. That doesn't sound like old bait. Mrs. Sheffield was adamant, and I had no reason to disbelieve her. But August wanted to be sure. The three of us made our way to the Sheffield place. We circled it on our horses. All the windows had been shattered during the meteor impact. In fact, we could see a small crater but a few hundred feet away. August leapt off his saddle and crouched in the dust, staring at something. Tell me those don't look like old Bates' boots, he said, flint in his voice. They were. Long, pointed-toe footprints from Bates' army boots. The only affection he retained from those bygone days. And they led straight to our home. The three of us traced the steps backward and pieced together the rest of the story. The prints were clear. Before Bate hightailed it, before he killed our parents, before he attacked his poor wife, before any of that, he'd visited the meteor crater that the three of us were now standing over. Not much of a meteor, said August, holding it up. It was true, only about the size of an onion, and hollow, too cracked open like an egg. The whole thing was that same awful green but not green color from the night before. Wyatt was blinking back tears, trying to be brave. I put my arm around him. August stood up and steadied himself. He seemed to have come to a decision. Well, there's nothing to be done about Ma and Pa. God rest their souls. We're just gonna have to go and get Bates Sheffield ourselves. I shook myself. August, that don't make no sense. Leave it to Sheriff Hepford. August's hazel eyes flashed red, and for a second I thought he was going to sock me in my mouth. But he held off. Good thing he did, too. Now, back in those days, I was 
pretty scrawny kid. Not strong, but tenacious. Always pushing people around just to prove that I was the toughest. But if Oggs punched me and he really meant it, I might not have been in any shape for what came next. He's a strong boy, broad-chested and muscular from all those years wrangling animals. Bit on the shorter side, though. There were a few long winters in his youth where food was scarce. Ma said it had stunted his growth. August just spat into the dust. Sheriff Hepford is a drunk and a halfwit, and he had all these eyewitnesses telling him what bait did and where bait went, and he's still here, goddammit. I found myself agreeing. Seemed like the only way we'd get justice was if we sought it ourselves. What about the services from Ma and Pa? asked Wyatt. We gotta be here and see them sent into the arms of the Lord. August almost spat again, but held off. They'll sleep better knowing old Bait is dead in the ground with him, he said. When Wyatt didn't say nothing, he continued. Wyatt, if we wait, nobody will ever catch him. What with all his army training. The Mountie Station is two days' ride in the other direction, but then the tracks will be gone. There's no choice. We've got to run him down. And as he said it, I couldn't help but notice a whisper of excitement in his voice. Before noon, our horses were loaded with food, water, and bullets, and the town was fading into the horizon behind us. Nobody had stood in our way. In fact, those that saw what was inside our house had encouraged us. No man who's done that can be suffered to live, said Doc Pleary, as he saw us off. He'd even given August his prized Colt Buntline revolver, which August accepted, even though the 12-inch barrel was cumbersome in his gun belt. <laughs> I'm not sure which uh, part and gift he fancied more. That, or the little peck on the cheek Martina Don Vita had given him as we rode off. Bait was easy enough to track that first morning. He'd made no attempt to hide his boot prints, which dotted the dust clear as fence posts. We were surprised to see that he'd left the path almost immediately. Back then there was no paving in that part of the country, but even so the safest place was on the well-trod path that led to the main roads. Off a path here at the mercy of wolves and rocks and holes in the earth containing God knows what kind of snakes and other viciousness. The bait didn't seem to care. Heck, August noticed that he didn't even hesitate, not as he crossed off the path and not any other time at all. His long, heavy strides were unbroken. It wasn't long till we passed the first jackrabbit. We didn't even notice what it was till we was right up on it. Ears gave it away. August and I told Wyatt to hold up as we got a closer look. He pouted, but stayed put. I suppose Bait must have trapped it using some kind of snare, but it was hard to tell what with the mess left behind. He hadn't eaten a single part of it. Instead, it was as if he'd dug through the rabbit, looking for something. Its head, especially, was cracked wide, like two thumbs pulling an apple in half, and the rabbit's brains lay scooped out, drying in the sun. Now, what would he be looking for? Anyone? I have a few ideas, but I hope to never have an occasion to test them. 
August's eyes got even colder. Let's go, he said. It was the first thing he'd said all morning. Bates' trail was haunted by more dead things. Every half hour or so we'd pass another animal, treated in the same rough manner by bait. Rabbits, voles, a coyote, even a white-tailed deer. Brains out, no meat missing. Just all pulled apart as if bait hadn't been hungry at all. Like he'd been looking for something specific he hadn't found. To distract ourselves from the gored animals, the three of us discussed what we knew of old bait. August wanted us primed for battle with the outlaw, and that meant strategy, matching our strengths against his weaknesses. Now, Bate wasn't his Christian name. No surprise there. It was a nickname from his days serving in the Northwest Mounted Police. He'd been a cook, you see, making passable campfire meals from whatever hardscrabble meat he and his unit could scrounge. But near as we could tell, nobody in town knew his real name, neither. Even his missus called him Bate. So... He'd outlast us on the range, living off the land. We had to catch him before our supplies ran low. And they'd have killed before. At least we thought he had. Adults whispered about it on occasion, dropping little hints. The subject of death was one we knew not to bring up around Bait. Heck, Bait didn't even like seeing August reading cowboy stories. He'd look away from the black and white illustrations of gun smoke and blood. That was all we knew of Bate, until later that afternoon. It was then that we learned that Bate was also a preternaturally talented swimmer. Shit, said August. It's gotta be at least half a kilometer across. The river bubbled and swirled as it made its way northeast. We'd followed Bate's trail right up to the edge of the bank. No other boot prints, no sign of an attempt to find safe crossing. He'd walked right into the water as if it were nothing. Well, we weren't bait. We detoured till we found a skiff large enough to carry a horse, and paid the ferryman three times for our crossing. All told, it was near and dark by the time we found his trail again. Besides, bits of river water pooled in his heel prints. The tracks were exactly the same. We spurred our horses. Slowly, the sun fell behind the distant Rockies, and a few stars winked in the distance high up above. We couldn't track bait through the darkness, so August grudgingly ordered us to stop for the night. His frustration threatened to boil over. We hadn't passed any sign of a camp, not even break in the trail. How had he come this far, this fast, while on foot? We were just starting to set up camp when August hollered for us to stop. He'd been standing over Bates' trail, ruminating over the situation. We ran over. There, in the dust, between two boot prints, was a small patch of glowing dust. I immediately felt queasy. It was the same, green but not green, as the meteor shower. It had no specific shape, just looking like a dried water stain. August looked up and our eyes followed his. A line of patches of glowing dust stretched far into the distance, always between the boot prints, as if each of Bates' steps had been accompanied by a slow release of... Uh, of... of whatever the stuff was. My eyes began to water from looking at it. I saw that Wyatt was squinting as well. It was the first time we'd seen the color so close up. 
Something about that glow seemed to itch at the back of your eye sockets, like the like the light was trying to get up into your head. August, though, he stared right at it with a triumphant grin on his face. See, boys, he said, God is lighting our way to bait. The angels are on our side. August and I mounted our horses, eager to continue the hunt. But Wyatt didn't move. August, Cassidy, maybe I'll just stay here, said Wyatt. I could turn back, go find a Mountie or something. Reinforcements, you know. August opened his mouth to say something, but I beat him to it. Wyatt, of all the yellow-bellied crap I ever heard, this has got to be the worst, I shouted. Our parents are dead. We're on the trail of the man who done it, and you want to run off because you're scared? I ain't yellow, Wyatt shouted right back. I just... I just don't think Bate did this. Something don't feel right. Wyatt ain't scared of Bate, Cassidy, said August. And with the fire at his back, he was nothing but a shadow in the darkness. All his life, God's been telling Wyatt to turn the other cheek. He's scared that revenge might feel too good. That sealed it. Wyatt packed his things in silence. We followed the glow and trail until the horses began to stumble and trip on unseen cracks and holes. Only then did we rest. <laughs> that glow and trail. Now, years later, it seems less like divine intervention and more that whatever evil was inside bait was leaking out of him. Something had begun bothering me about those animals baited savaged, and the next morning I finally understood. There were no flies. We'd come across an abandoned cart while following Bates' trail. The air was still crisp, even as the morning sun beat down on our necks, and Wyatt was entertaining himself by blowing little clouds of steam as our horses bore us forward. Dread chill ran through me when I saw that cart, and on instinct I held my hand out to stop Wyatt's progress. The inside was, well, messy. Clearly, someone had been taking foodstuffs to a nearby town when bait had come upon them. Their horse must have taken off scared because the harness was broken and all that was left were hoof prints. Whose cart was it? There weren't enough body parts left to tell. I didn't run off or lose my mind at the sight this time. The still sharp memory of my parents' death had fortified me against a particular shape of Bates' brutality. I registered that this man's head, like Ma's and Pa's, was also missing for unknown reasons. And there were no flies on the remaining corpse pieces, which reminded me that there were no flies on any of the animals. I pointed this out to August, whose grim face became even grimmer, as if the information confirmed Bates' devilry. Even the natural process of death turned its back on his actions. Cassidy, August, come see. It was Wyatt. He was holding a boot. Well, not just any boot, neither. A genuine Mountie boot. Bates' boot. So he lost it during the murder, said August, and kept right on going. He gestured to the dirt, where Bates' trail now showed one boot print and one print barefoot alternating off into the distance. That ought to slow the bastard down, said August. He leapt back on his horse and gestured for the two of us to follow. But Cassidy, 
said Wyatt when we had just a moment alone. Why wouldn't he just put the boot back on? Why would he leave all that food in the cart? And I thought and thought, but no answer came to me. I still do not have one. We were able to keep going well into the evening. Bates' drippings lit the way, even brighter than they were the night before. They led us directly into the Badlands. The night wind whistled through the canyons and between the hoodoos. Another night might have been beautiful, but I startled at every sound, and each shadow seemed on the verge of resolving into Bates' murderous form. The trail led us around a high rock wall. As we made the turn, a sight unlike any other we'd ever seen greeted us. The whole sky was aglow, bright with that awful awful color. White and I averted our eyes, feeling the sting of it. But August once again seemed unbothered. There, he said, pointing into the distance. The not green light was spilling out of the canyon to the north, reminding me of the ways I'd seen the northern lights while on the range. But I doubt the northern lights ever made a body so anxious. We abandoned Bay's trail and instead picked our way upwards, climbing the rocks till we reached the lip of the glowing canyon, abandoning the horses halfway up due to the uneven terrain. We peered over the edge. I'd seen this canyon a few times when Pa and I made the trek to Red Deer. Never gave it much thought. A simple bowl shape made by a rocky escarpment. On the outside, it was a simple hill you could climb up nice and easy, but the inside was a steep cliff that only a mountain goat could clamber down. That meant the only way in or out was the narrow passage Bait had used below. And there he was, Bait. We could just barely make him out from our vantage. He was standing before the source of the queasy light. A large boulder about the size of the general store in town. Bait was doing something to it that we couldn't tell from that far away. In that moment, I should have been focused on revenge. There he was, the man who'd killed my parents, ripe for the picking. But all I could think about was that big, shining boulder. No, not boulder. Meteor. And no doubt its impact had created this very canyon many centuries ago. August's hand clapped my shoulder. It was time. We made our way back down in silence. A handful of bullets. Two bodies. It was over hardly after it had begun. We made Wyatt stay outside the canyon altogether. Someone needed to watch the horses, after all, said August. It was a bad lie, but Wyatt was eventually convinced. In truth, and despite harsher words previous... We thought we could spare him from the bloodshed. August and I cleaned and loaded our revolvers and strapped our rifles to our backs. We made our way through the narrow passage on foot, taking care not to make any noise that would echo off the canyon walls. As we approached, a rhythmic screech filled the air. From a distance, I could see that old bait was digging at that big green but not green meteor. August and I crept up, finding shelter behind large boulders, and once we was close enough, I could make out that he wasn't digging with any implement, 
just his bare hands. He'd mangled them. There weren't even hands no more. His fingers had broken off from the force of digging and lay scattered in the dust around his feet like ten spent shotgun shells. But he didn't cry out in pain. Instead, his leftover ruined flesh and bone kept scraping against the space rock with a high-pitched squeal like chalk on a schoolhouse chalkboard. I fought the urge to puke. This was wrong. Very wrong. He ain't all right, I whispered to August. My voice was desperate. That ain't bait. We should just plug him from here and be done with it. Don't even have a weapon. It was true. Bait had nothing except his boot and three sacks hanging from his shoulder. But August had his heart set on a particular kind of revenge, and he was deaf to my pleas. Bait Sheffield! shouted August, walking out from behind our cover. You have killed my ma and pa. You have fled from justice, but now it has found you. Turn and face the instrument of divine judgment, and may God have mercy on your soul. It was a right pretty thing for him to say, but Bait did not turn. He just kept scraping away at that meteor. Squeal, squeal, squeal. August turned red and swung his rifle around. He fired one shot over Bates' head and walked forward. The shot didn't get no reaction, even though I saw it ricochet off a meteor just a foot above Bates' head. But something happened when August got closer. Bait still hadn't reacted. But two of those sacks we saw hanging from Bates' shoulder suddenly twisted around reveal. Faces. Mangled, grisly faces attached to mangled, grisly heads. Even from a distance, there was no mistaking them. Ma? Pa? said August, staring wide-eyed, and his voice was that of a little boy. I felt my blood turn to ice and race to close the distance between me and August. I didn't know why, but I just needed to get us out of there. I grabbed his arm, and just when I did, Ma and Pa both opened their eyes. That awful color. It poured out of their empty sockets, bathed August in light so bright I couldn't even see him no more. I stepped towards Bate, drawing my gun, but the third sack turned, and light poured from the head of the cart driver directly towards me. My head filled with the most peculiar images. I felt myself soaring across the blackness of space, riding currents of energy that I could not understand. I was surrounded by my brothers and sisters, whom I could not speak to or even see. Worlds sped by us, fast as anything, and I felt my siblings break away and fall towards these lands. I could feel as violence swarmed across these entire planets, entire solar systems. And then the images relented and I had the strangest compulsion. Yes. It would be best to shoot myself, I thought. It would be the best thing in the whole entire world, that was for sure. A smile spread across my face. And I saw August grinning too. 
grinning like I'd never seen him grin before. Such a serious boy. And he reached down, pulled Doc Pleary's prized Colt Buntline from his gun belt, and put a bullet in his brain. And Lord, in that moment I was happy for him. Proud of him for doing it. Heck, I wanted to join him, and I pulled my revolver out too. But before I could fire, three more shots echoed out the night. A green light flicked off like someone blowing out a candle. For a moment I was furious, but then I recognized the body at my feet as August's and shook myself. I drew down on bait, who still hadn't turned from his infernal labor. Unlike August, I did not hesitate. It still took twelve bullets to end Bates' life. The first nine from a distance, and the last three I pumped into his head with the barrel against his brain pan, while he still kept digging at that meteor. Finally, the squealing stopped. He fell into the dust, and after a moment, so did I. Using my boot, I rolled Bates' body over. Ma and Pa's heads had been blasted apart. I looked closer at Bates' face. It was not the face I remembered. Not a friendly face about town. A man who worked and prayed and carried his lot in life about as well as any. The humanity had been stolen from it. Next to my bullet holes, there was a large open wound in his cheek that seemed to stretch right into his skull. It reminded me of those small burrows I'd see in dead tree stumps. I stooped to get a closer look. Suddenly, his eyelid and cheek twitched, and before I knew it, a small, knock-green critter skittered out of the wound and onto Bates' face. It looked like a hog-nosed bat, smashed, ugly face with beady eyes. Its four wings were folded tight against its body. It had these... Two digger claws on the front, and fangs as sharp and thin as sewing needles. It twisted this way and that before, seeming to notice my presence, little eyes shining with a sort of recognition. Leapt towards me, flapping clumsily, but I'd already instinctively pushed myself backwards. That scary diseases, you know. His jump fell short, and I crushed it into the dirt with my boot heel. When I raised my foot, there was nothing but a glowing, not-green stain that slowly faded into blackness. Wyatt came out from behind a boulder and joined me, carrying his still-smoking rifle. <laughs> he always had been the best shot out of the three of us. Had he not ignored our order to stay behind, had he not intuited destroying the heads, I would be dead today. As dead as August, Ma, Pa, and the others. Wyatt did not cry then, too overwhelmed by the enormity of our loss, I suppose. He merely squatted in the dirt beside old Bates' body. His gun barrel stirred the strangely colored liquid that flowed from Bates' bullet wounds and pooled on the ground. Did we get revenge, Cassidy? He asked me without turning around. Did we get revenge like August wanted? Sure didn't feel like revenge. Or if this is what revenge felt like, then it weren't much different than that big empty black sky up above from which something evil and foul fell to destroy our lives and Bates too.
No, I said. Just another rabid animal. Wyatt nodded. He said a prayer over Bates' body just the same. The meteor in the canyon was dark now. Stars twinkled above. Exhausted, White and I laid down our bedrolls and were instantly asleep. We left for town to the first light. It seemed wrong to bring his body through town, so we buried August on the range, halfway between the river and the grasslands where the cattle grazed. I held Wyatt's hand while he set the parts of the funeral service that he recalled. He cried then. I knew August wouldn't brook no crying, but I wasn't August. We told the town a version of events colored by tact and decorum. Mrs. Sheffield would never know the state of her husband when he died. August's death became an accident for fear the pastor would judge suicide and deny him his place in heaven. I went from a 14-year-old middle child to a 14-year-old cattle rancher, landowner, and head of a family. Wyatt remained my little brother right up till the day he left for seminary. He's a traveling preacher now. I believe his last letter was sent from Montana. In other words, life continued. I suppose it would be too much to ask for it to stop on account of five measly deaths, no matter how unusual. But hell, those five deaths sure meant a lot to me. Don't that count for something? Don't it? It was so simple in those dime novels. Like there was a rule book. And even now, questions still nibble at my heels some nights. Why did Bates scoop out those brains? Why were there no flies on those carcasses? Why did August and the man with the cart die? Why did Wyatt and I live? Why Bates? Why our parents? Why us? And on those nights, I look up at the sky, and the blackness between the stars looks so dark and deep, it's... It's like there ain't no light up there at all. In the 40 years since, I've been back that way many a time. And that canyon has never been aglow the way it was that night. Whatever Bate was trying to get at. Well, it seems to be quiet. For now. The Wrong Station is made possible with the generous support of our listeners on Patreon. Patrons can listen to The Wrong Station ad-free, as well as get access to bonus episodes, discussions, and more. This week's episode, Run Em Down, was written by Jacob Duarte Spiel and performed by Anthony Botello. Thank you to Bree Richardson, A. Rodko, Alan Long, Ken Mills, and a very special thanks to Martina Don Vita for helping us keep the lights, well, off. The Wrong Station is co-produced by Alexander Saxton, Anthony Botello, and Jacob Duarte Spiel, with music composed and performed on the piano by Elan Citrin, and arranged for the viola and performed by Viola Schmidt. You can follow The Wrong Station on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, and email us at therongstation at gmail.com. And until next time, thank you for listening.